Chapter 12. From the Marching Rule to the Bougainville Crisis. Cautionary Tales of Nationalist Movements. In writing this book, I was interested in the self-determination desires of Melanesian people, both within our own Morris Brothers organisations and nationally. And the more I researched, the more I realised that a lot of these ideas were linked. And so I decided after having completed writing 11 chapters, that I would take a slight diversion from the historical aspects of the Maris Brothers story and talk about this nationalist movement in a dedicated chapter. I had many uh, national people read this chapter prior to publication and I hope that uh, it doesn't cause any offence to anybody. So from the Marching Rule to the Bougainville Crisis, Cautionary Tales of Nationalist Movements. Another aspect of Melanesia's history, which has intertwined with our district story since its beginning, is the gradual development of nationalist movements. The fact that Melanesians have the right to run their own affairs has not always been recognised and much suffering has resulted. There are signs of hope as Melanesian people continue their efforts towards development and establishing their place in the community of nations. Protecting cultural diversity. Melanesian people have been living in these islands for more than 50,000 years and until the colonial age successfully developed their own ways of living with one another in their environment. 10,000 years ago, Melanesians tended the world's first food gardens and later raised domesticated animals. The cultural diversity of these islands is widely known and has been studied extensively. The great wealth of different languages, cultures, plants and animals is well documented. For example, of the world's 6,000 languages, 1,100 of them, nearly one-fifth, are spoken in Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands. In terms of this diversity, Melanesia is the richest in the world. It is little wonder that Melanesians are proud of their home and desire to protect it for future generations. Importantly, Melanesians want to be in control of their own homeland. During the past 200 years, Melanesians experienced with many misgivings the colonial era, during which, for the first time, they lost control of their own destiny. Papua New Guinea gained its independence from colonial rule in 1975 and the Solomons in 1978. Independence for both countries brought a period of renewed pride and hope for a bright future. The new nations of Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands experienced unprecedented unity, a new beginning and the exciting prospect of being in control once more. In more recent times, foreign ownership of businesses, the control of resources by multinational corporations, huge national debts and political corruption 
have whistled away the idealism and dreams of those heady days. Self-determination is an issue which has affected the Morris brothers and continues to do so. This story contains elements of pain and hope. Pain because it involves past and present injustice based on race and culture. And hope because the future of these lands to a great extent lies in Melanesian hands. Modern Melanesians wish to preserve their culture yet desire to be part of the modern world. They are aware that no culture is perfect and that their culture must evolve if it is to stay alive. By necessity, this involves new ways of interacting with non-Melanesian nations and peoples. This chapter summarises the development of some nationalist movements in Solomon Islands and Bougainville, and the meeting of Melanesian and European cultures within the Maoist Brothers congregation. Millennium Movements Millennium Movements, which have been prevalent in Melanesia at various times, frequently receive much attention from Western observers, yet they are generally not well understood. The term cargo cult which has acquired negative overtones, is often applied to millennium movements as they occur in the Pacific. This term is often unhelpful because it has contributed to a simplistic understanding of these complex phenomena. Ennio Mantovani, the former director of the Melanesian Institute, believes that the term cargo is a Western misinterpretation of the profound Melanesian longing for full life. Millennium movements, these essentially religious movements, arise as a result of the interaction between traditional Melanesian religion and Western culture. The beliefs of the movements are deeply rooted in Melanesian religion. The main aspects of those beliefs are a search for a true Melanesian identity, an expectation of the return of ancestors, a belief that salvation will occur in the present world, and a belief in the need for correct rituals to bring about salvation. The aim is to restore the perfection of the ancestral past in the present time. The movements are sometimes connected with social or political agenda and some have been linked with nationalist aspirations. However, the movements are not simply a response to the oppression of colonial rule. Rather, they arise from deeply felt religious needs. The arrival of missionaries had the unexpected result of the rise of the millennial movements. One factor was that missionaries and colonials seemed to have an abundant supply of all kinds of goods which arrived by ship or plane. The Second World War demonstrated that cargo could readily be delivered in abundance. A particularly successful Millennium Prophet was Yali of the Medang district, who was at the peak of his influence in the 1950s and 1960s. In 1972, 
Yali befriended the American scholar Jared Diamond. They had many discussions. One day, while walking along the Medang beach, Yali asked Jared Diamond a question. Why is it that you white people developed so much cargo and brought it to New Guinea, but we black people had little cargo of our own? Years later, Diamond wrote a book which attempted to answer Yali's question. Diamond presented a convincing case to show that Melanesians are, on average, more intelligent than Europeans. Yet it is evident that European cultures are more developed. He points to the ready access that Europeans had to a wide range of raw materials, iron, for example, and useful animals such as horses. This gave them an enormous historical advantage over the people of the Pacific. Millennium movements continued into the 21st century, affecting even the church and religious life. Religious life can appear attractive because of the options it opens up for its members. For religious orders working in Melanesia, wise discernment is required, both in assessing their candidates and in reviewing the lifestyle of all members in the context of the area in which they work. The Marching Rule Movement in the Solomons After the Second World War, the Marching Rule, a complex nationalist millennium movement of Solomon Islanders, became strong on the island of Malaita, which has a high proportion of Catholics. The English word marching sounds something like a word in one of the Malaitan languages, Ma'asina, which means brotherhood. The name marching rule can therefore be interpreted to mean a brotherhood of Solomon Islanders. Partly due to their experiences in World War II, Solomon Islanders were developing a new sense of themselves as a people who owned these islands, and they began to question and resist British rule. The basic idea behind the marching rule was to improve the lives of Solomon Islanders and to promote Melanesian values. It had elements of cargo cults and much anti-British sentiment as a reaction against the inequality between Europeans and locals. Naturally, the British authorities worked hard to stamp out the movement, but it continued in various forms into the 1950s. And the thinking behind the movement continued to some extent into the 21st century. Our Solomon brothers, particularly Malaitans, were supportive of the more noble aims of the movement, as indeed were most of the Catholics on Malaita. Many Catholics distrusted the British regime, which was essentially Anglican. The development of the marching rule had little impact on the daily operation of the Marist Brothers' schools, and there are scarcely any references to the movement in the brothers' writing of the time. However, the Tenaru Annals of 30 August 1947 record an apparently successful attempt by the British in arresting some of the Malayan leaders of the movement. Quote, a British cruiser with several small craft with armed police boys proceeded to Malu in North Malaita 
to arrest the leaders of the marching rule. The US supplied air cover. The British authorities announced that the raid was successful. End of quote. The brothers of the time, none of whom were locals, tended towards the prevailing British view that the movement was a politically oriented cult which had to be suppressed, while encouraging the increase in Catholic converts which accompanied the growth of the movement. Like most expatriates, the brothers had little understanding of the complex issues that gave rise to the marching rule. One insensitive missionary at the time wrote, It is an ill-advised movement with much that is bewildering, the growing pains of a primitive people. Later, the return of the first Solomon brothers from Australia and the establishment of communities, which included Melanesian brothers, expanded the Marist brothers' understanding of local issues beyond the confines of their school. It is clear that some, if not all of the Solomon brothers, were influenced by the positive aspects of the marching rules philosophy of promoting Solomon Island's identity. One of the Solomon brothers wrote in 1958, expressing his concerns about unfair treatment of his people by the Europeans who came to their Solomon who came to the Solomons for their own financial gain. Given the activities and attitudes of some planters, timber getters, and foreign traders on his island at the time, his strong language, a reflection of the marching rule, anti-European sentiment, is understanding. Quote, the white people who come to the Solomons are only after money. They do not pay us properly when we work for them. They take our land and they treat us like pigs and dogs. Because we are not educated, they take advantage of us. We work for them and they live just like kings. Nor do I want any white men with us. It is very good if we of the Solomons drive them all back to their own land. The only whites I want to stay in the Solomons are the fathers, brothers and sisters. This letter reflects a common experience of expatriate missionaries, who are generally welcomed by Melanesians if they respect local customs and assist by providing essential services such as education, healthcare or church work. The marching rule adherents reacted differently to different missionaries. In general, Anglican and Catholic missions were able to continue their work, largely unaffected by the growing movement. By contrast, many evangelical missionaries, notably SSEM, found themselves ostracised by their former converts, many of whom became leaders of the marching rule. The reason for the different treatment is that evangelical missionaries were generally less sympathetic to traditional Melanesian cultural values. The marching rule had lots of problems, but it had many good aspects. It represented the rising self-awareness of the Solomon Islanders as Melanesians, and it was one element of a groundswell which would eventually lead to independence. Recent ethnic tensions in Solomon Islands, 1999 to 2001, cannot be attributed directly to the history of colonialism. The conflicts 
between Malaitans and Guadalcanals were about perceived Malaitan control of business and land on Guadalcanal Island, particularly in and around the capital Honiara. It was, however, the post-war colonial powers, United States Americans and Australians, who established the new capital on Guadalcanal, a decision that put into motion a series of migrations towards Honiara. These migrations ultimately led to the tensions. Meanwhile, in Bougainville, other events were occurring, which contributed to a strong separatist movement on the island. The following sections outline some of the history of the interactions of Bougainvillians with colonial cultures. These events provide the background against which the separatist movement developed, strengthened, and ultimately became one of the factors which contributed to the Bougainville crisis of 1989 to 1998. Blackbirding in Bougainville Douglas Oliver, in his book Black Islanders, tells the story of a blackbirding party which, in 1871, captured a group of 85 unsuspecting Bougainvillians who had taken their 20-man canoes to the blackbirding ship out of curiosity or a desire to trade. The blackbirders enticed them on board and immediately chained them. Imprisoned below decks with another 80 Vanuatuans and Solomon Islanders, the Bougainvillians, desperately desperate to regain their freedom, began to rip the ship apart and set fire to it. Regrettably, the incident ended with the shooting of about 70 of the Bougainvillians. The blackbirding captain, however, unwilling to risk further incidents with these fiercely independent people, instructed his men to throw the remaining Bougainvillians overboard. Some jumped into the ocean and made it safely back to shore. This story is an interesting illustration of Bougainvillians' desire for freedom and independence. After PNG independence, successive national governments discovered to their chagrin that the Bougainvillian aspiration for autonomy was strong. The German era, 1884 to 1914. In 1884, the German government annexed northeastern New Guinea and the Bismarck Archipelago, New Britain and New Ireland. The Germans' purposes were to exploit a new source of raw materials and to secure a strategic outpost in Germany's empire. The German copra plantations on Bougainville used local workers under a basically unjust system of indentured labour. Local production of copra by Bougainvillians was permitted, but a head tax was imposed and all males were forced to do unpaid work several weeks a year on public projects for the government, mostly on government plantations, government stations and roads. Shortly after the outbreak of World War I, Australian authorities imposed a military occupation on Bougainville, although German planters were permitted to continue on the island after taking an oath of neutrality. Following the blackbirders, the German planters did little to restore the Bougainvillians' trust in Europeans. Bougainville between the two world wars. After World War I, 
Australian administration officers were appointed, KIAPs, whose responsibilities were wide-ranging. They were little kings in their own area, with the full force of colonial authority. Locals were required to act as porters, carriers, for European travellers, a particularly despised requirement, as was the forced road construction work. The Kiap often told the locals to improve their walking trails to suit his own travel by bicycle. As well, the German practice of the head tax was continued. During this period, many Europeans, mostly Australians, claimed ownership of the prime fertile plantation land, with good access to seaports. The total area of foreign-owned plantations was 28,000 hectares, 280 square kilometres, a significant fraction of the small island's limited land suitable for plantations. As a result, most of the island's copper production came from European-owned plantations. The system of indentured labour continued, and Chinese or Europeans owned virtually all trade stores, the retail shops. Bougainville in World War II The war story, as it relates to Marist work in Bougainville, is told later in this book. After the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbour in December 1941, their intention to occupy the entire Pacific became obvious. Consequently, most Europeans, except those involved in essential government administration, left Bougainville soon after the Pearl Harbour bombing. A month later, in January 1942, the government district officer, his staff, and other senior government officials commandeered a mission boat and withdrew to safety in Port Moresby. Bougainvillians have since been somewhat cynical of that abandonment by their Australian protectors. The expected Japanese invasion occurred in March 1942, Buka being the first island occupied. At first, Japanese relationships with the Bukas were cordial and respectful. The Japanese, presenting themselves as liberators, established schools on Buka to teach Japanese language and customs. As the war progressed and Japanese supply lines were cut, the relationships with locals became more hostile, as the soldiers made more and more demands for food and harshly punished anyone suspected of supporting the Allies. By the time the United States Army established a beachhead with 14,000 men at Torokina in November 1943, there were an estimated 65,000 Japanese troops on Booker and Bougainville. The United States' plan was to build an airfield as a launching pad for a further assault on Rabaul, which was the Japanese Pacific headquarters. A large naval and air base which was supplying the Japanese Pacific War effort. A year later, Australian troops took over from the Americans. Almost half of the Japanese forces on Bougainville had died during 1944, the major cause being sickness and starvation. The Americans, once established, used their bombers to neutralise enemy airfields on the island, further isolating the Japanese from their supply line. The US forces made no attempt to occupy the entire island, having achieved their objective of building a secure airfield for their bombers. 
It was a different story when the Australians arrived. The Australians decided to recapture Bougainville and rid it of all surviving Japanese forces. A foolish and costly decision, widely criticised at the time and, and since. There were doubts about the plan, even among the troops, who knew that the Japanese defeat was inevitable. War's end was imminent and would be decided elsewhere. Thus, Bougainville's recapture was irrelevant to the Allied victory. Nevertheless, when called on to fight, the Australian troops did so dutifully and courageously. Yet many casualties at the hands of the desperate Japanese survivors well established on the island. Predictably, the Japanese losses were enormous. 8,000 Japanese were killed in the fighting, and an estimated 9,000 died of disease. 500 Australians were killed, and 1,500 wounded. The unnecessary campaign continued until war's end, and only after the Japanese surrender in Rabaul in September 1945 did the remaining 23,000 Japanese troops on Bougainville surrender to the Australians. It is unclear why the military commanders chose a course of action that caused the death of so many people and further disruption and tragedy for the long-suffering Bougainvillians. Perhaps they wanted glory for the Australian troops and the honour of defeating the Japanese. Effects of World War II on Bougainvillians Though the exact number is unknown, many Bougainvillians died or were injured as a direct result of the war. Add to that the destruction of infrastructure, disruption to food production and to daily life. The wartime development of roads and airstrips had limited value for Bougainvillians, except for the Marsden matting airfield surface and other useful war debris scavenged for use in villages or gardens. In consequence, Bougainvillians became even more suspicious of invading foreigners, who brought with them nothing but trouble and tragedy. Blackbirders, planters, German, Australian and Japanese administrations and an unnecessary war. Largely as a result of the war, relationships between the emerging Pacific nations and their colonial masters were irrevocably changed, and in Bougainville and elsewhere, the stage was set for the strong independence movements of the 1970s and 1980s. The post-war administration in the territory of Papua and New Guinea resumed in much the same way as it had operated previously. Two new laws came into force, which revealed a slow change in some colonial attitudes. Local people were finally allowed to operate businesses, and in 1963, local people were permitted to purchase alcohol. The Hahilas Welfare Society The mid-1950s saw the beginning of the Hahilas Welfare Society on Booker Island. This story, too long to tell in detail here, was a further example of people taking charge of their own affairs. There are many writings about the Hahilas Welfare Society, for example, Albert Kiki's book, 10,000 Years in a Lifetime. 
Later, the society's ideals were considerably discredited by questionable moral practices promoted by its leaders, which led to strong opposition from the Catholic Church, which was at that time by far the largest Christian denomination on Booker. In 1962, the society leaders advised their followers to refuse to pay the government tax, which resulted in a bloody battle between approximately 1,000 society members and a large contingent of police. The Marist Fathers' response was to organise development projects along the lines promoted by the Welfare Society. Timber milling, house building projects, copra and cocoa plantations resulted from these Marist initiatives, somewhat assisted by overseas aid. The refusal to pay the poll tax during Welfare Society times is another early example of Bougainvillean suspicion of authority based outside Bougainville. The Panguna Copper Mine Between 1972 and 1989, the Panguna Mine operated in the Crown Prince Range of central Bougainville. The mine site is situated in the Panguna Mountains, 26 kilometres by road from the east coast. The full story of the mine, its planning, operation, closure and its aftermath is beyond the scope of this book. It's been well documented elsewhere, for example in Oliver's Black Islanders. Prospecting began in 1963 when Rio Tinto of Australia, CRA, was granted a prospecting licence by the colonial administration. Early discussions with the Panguna people informed them that there were valuable minerals under their land. Secondly, the CRA officials informed the, the Pangunas that the colonial administration owned those minerals and not the traditional Nassioi landowners. Of course, the local people totally rejected the British government, the British concept of government ownership of subsurface minerals. Their most common response was anger at these foreigners trespassing on their land. Later, the US Bishop LeMay supported the landowners in their ownership claim on subsurface minerals, citing United States land laws and pointing out that crown ownership was a peculiarity of the British system and by no means universal. With growing alarm, the people of Panguna watched with suspicion as survey pegs were placed and the test drill samples removed. Soon after, active opposition began, with trees felled across the helicopter landing pad and tambu signs placed by the locals on the prospecting area. Prospectors keep out. This resulted in a concession payment of $2 per acre per year for the area to be prospected and mined. Most continued their opposition in spite of the meagre payment. Police were posted at the Panguna site to prevent further disruptions to the surveying. Why were the Panguna people so strong in their opposition to the mine? The main reason seems to be that they distrusted Europeans until they showed themselves to be clearly aligned in support of Bougainvillean people and their rights, as most missionaries were. Bougainvillians remembered the blackbirders and the planters who claimed the best land, then employed locals at low wages. They remembered being abandoned by the administration when the Japanese came. 
They remembered the poor treatment at the hand of the mostly unsympathetic Kiaps and administration officials. Now these people were going to dig up their land and steal their minerals. Few, if any, Bougainvilleans had any idea of the scale of the operation which was about to begin in their mountains. Some of the Maris priests became involved in the dispute and encouraged the people to be firm in standing up for their rights. Mining commenced in 1972. By then, a road had been constructed, snaking its way 1,000 metres up the steep sides of the Crown Prince Range to link the mine with the port at Lolaho on the east coast. Water for the mine, 140 million litres per day, was pumped 11 kilometres from the westerly flowing Java River up to the mine site. Power was supplied from the Lolahu power station, twice the amount of electricity produced by all other power stations in New Guinea at that time. The people whose villages were on the site of the mine were relocated. Westerners cannot fully understand the psychological effect of relocation because they do not have the Melanesian sense of land and place. Every Melanesian has a home, place belong me. The location of that home never changes. Even if living in another province or country, a Panguna always has a place waiting, high in the Bougainville Mountains. My land, my home, my people. It is of immense spiritual significance. That this holy ground, Mekamui in the Nasua language, could become drowned by a smelly, poisonous swamp or disappear into a huge hole in the earth was absolutely unthinkable. Yet, that is exactly what happened. The disposal of mine tailings deposited into the Jaba River became an environmental problem of mammoth proportions. During the mine's 17-year lifetime, one billion tonnes of tailings were disposed of in this way. A similar amount of waste was stockpiled in a valley adjacent to the mine. The valley slowly filled with solid mine waste, eventually covering the site of De Pera village, which was relocated to a higher position. The Jaba River immediately became polluted. It widened, silted up, and became blocked in places. This caused flooding of adjacent parts, thus forming large areas of new polluted swampland. All fish life in the river died, and the previously pristine, sparkling water took on a murky blue coloration. About 1,000 people in the Jabba Valley were relocated because their villages were eventually inundated by silt or swamp. Numerous others from nearby villages in the densely populated valley were affected as they customarily used the river and its environs for hunting, fishing or recreational activities. Under pressure from locals and environmental groups, the company began construction of a 31-kilometre pipeline which would deposit tailings directly into the ocean instead of spoiling the Jabba Valley en route. The pipeline was constructed, but it never operated. It was almost complete when the Bougainville crisis intervened and mining operations ceased in May 1989. 
Relocated villages and later Java Valley residents were compensated by the company. Eventually, in an attempt to pacify increasingly angry and aggressive landowners, payments became generous. Not only were house sites lost, but traditional gardening lands as well. The company's solution was to build European-style housing and to provide food, tin food and rice. Perhaps some were happy at first, but the cultural change was too costly. The previously peaceful village life was replaced by a life lived in the shadow of the mine operations with its never-ceasing noise. Hunting and gardening in the valley were severely affected. The influx of thousands of construction and mine workers created further problems. Many of these were New Guineans from the highlands or Sepik areas in distant New Guinea. Bougainvillians, who usually have jet black skin, resented the intrusion of the much lighter-skinned newcomers. Thus was born the offensive term redskin, referring to any person from another area of the territory. There were many problems with these workers, not least because of amorous interaction with the local women. Certainly Bougainvillians gained employment and unprecedented education and training opportunities as a result of the mine. Well, some of them. About 30% of the 10,000 strong BCL workforce were Bougainvillians. Pat Howley, in his book Breaking Spears and Mending Hearts, has documented the damaging impact of the mine on Bougainville culture. In brief, the old values of respect for culture and traditional authority were undermined by a new generation of, of wealthy mine workers who were seduced by the attraction of the expatriate lifestyle. The wants of the individual were placed before the community good, a recipe for disaster in Melanesian society. There's no doubt that the mine contributed much to the infrastructure development in central Bougainville. The problem was a perceived unequal distribution of benefits. For example, while the expatriate population of the new mining town of Arawa had all the benefits of residents in a wealthy rural Australian town, most local people were unable to access those benefits. Similarly, while some Panguna and Jabba landowners were eventually compensated for the loss of their land, many other similarly affected people received nothing. Worst of all, the mine profits were going overseas and the royalties were going to Port Moresby. Out of this complex mix of factors, the Bougainville crisis began in 1989. Some stories from the Bougainville crisis have been told in other chapters of this book. For more detailed information about the crisis, refer to Oliver's book, Black Islanders, or Howley's book, Breaking Spears and Mending Hearts. Similarly, the exciting story of the years leading up to independence in PNG and the Solomons is beyond our scope here. The Enlightened 21st Century? Question mark. The problems in the relationships between nationals and expatriates of the past century and a half are unfortunately still alive in the early years of the new century. This is illustrated by the following story. In 2003, the Prime Minister, Sir Michael Sumari, 
who died in 2021, made an extraordinary outburst in Parliament against critical comments written by some high-profile expatriates in the Australian press about aspects of PNG government and culture. One expatriate had claimed that PNG was close to collapse. Another said he would never raise his family in PNG. Both men were permanent residents. In fact, one was a PNG citizen married to a local. The Australian media published the allegations and sensationalised them, often in a shallow manner, showing scant understanding of the nuances of PNG culture. Sir Michael Samari was furious about these media reports. The National Newspaper reported Sir Michael's comments as follows. Quote, I want the Privileges Committee to imprison and hang them, Sir Michael told Parliament in March. Recently published Hansard transcripts reveal. Sir Michael is speaking figuratively. He knew well that the committee does not have capital punishment powers. He continues, Some of our foreign friends who married PNG nationals and live in our country write reports in the media to betray this country to the hands of the dogs, said Sir Michael. Samari told Parliament, Mr Speaker, if there was no citizenship law, I would be the first to deport these people tomorrow. This has given a very bad impression that members of Parliament can't even speak their language, English, can't translate, can't do things that they can do in Australia. These comments suggest that we can't even pilot our 767s, be engineers or architects or scientists. End of quote. That is from the National Newspaper of July the 10th, 2003. In 2003, after nearly 30 years of independence, expatriates still hold many of the key, key highest paid positions in PNG. A related issue is foreign ownership, an issue beyond our scope, but contributing to the strained relationships between some nationals and some expatriate residents. For example, foreigners own and operate most of the major businesses in PNG and Solomons, and even many of the smaller trade stores. Filipinos and Chinese dominate ownership of the retail sector, while many multinational mining and financial companies operating in the region are based in Australia and the US. Many of the Asian retailing families have lived in the country for generations. Many Asians have married locals, are citizens, and contribute enormously to the development of the country. They are respected for that, yet there's still a suspicion among some, among some nationals, that something is wrong, and that PNG and Solomon Islands still do not belong to Melanesians. These issues are complex and simplistic information, explanations and solutions are not helpful. Those who advocate return to an imagined idyllic past before the foreigners arrived are indul- indulging in useless romantic nostalgia. The reality is that the modern world has become globalised, and while many people deplore aspects of the growing injustices which result from this globalisation, particularly for developing nations. It's also true that Melanesians have the capacity to work within those structures, seeking to improve the situation rather than standing back helplessly.
the greatest need of all is for education for our young people so that tomorrow's leaders are not only informed but also highly principled. In the early 21st century, most citizens of PNG and Solomon Islands continue living with their traditional economies, so the wider global problems of unequal opportunity do not directly affect their lives. That situation, however, is rapidly changing, and the need for education unto justice is greater than ever. And what of the Marists? This book documents the achievements of the cooperative efforts of Melanesian Marists and expatriate Marists. The term Marist includes lay collaborators, of course. It's widely acknowledged that Melanesians are a welcoming people and desire to work in partnership with well-intentioned expatriates to promote development, to provide services and to build a better country for their children. The history of relationships with Europeans has elements of pain and celebration. The cause for celebration is that most missionaries, among many others, over their long history, have succeeded in establishing strong relationships with the Melanesian people. The missionary endeavour is a common search for truth and an effort to build a better life and society in partnership with the peoples of these lands. In earlier times, Missionaries would not have described their work in that way, perhaps, but insofar as they were successful in these goals, they were respected and welcomed by Melanesians. Missionaries come as guests and work as equal partners. This is true more than ever in the 21st century. A personal story. While working at Marbiri in central Bougainville, I knew a teacher at Arawa High School, a New Zealander, who was a keen birdwatcher. From time to time he came to Marbiri with his expensive telescope and revelled in the diversity of bird life there. He said to me one day, It's such a pity that the Bougainville crisis has blocked me from going up into the mountains to look for the bird species that don't come down to the coast. I would love to go up to Panguna or over to Mount Bagana, the local active volcano. This no-go zone is blocking me from getting to the places I want to see. No expatriates can go up there because of Francis' owner. He was both surprised and envious when I told him that I'd been to both places and that our boys had taken me up into their mountains many times. The difference was that Marists were well known and respected. Although I was a relative newcomer to central Bougainville, the long history of wonderful relationships between Centrals and Marists meant that, given the right introductions and permissions, and accompanied by the right people, I was, at that time, welcome in the no-go zone. It's not something that we take for granted, and sometimes things have gone wrong with individual expatriate brothers who've run into problems with relationships. All of us make cultural mistakes, but Melanesians readily forgive such mistakes if people's intentions are good. The difference between planters and miners and missionaries is that one group comes to make money, the other group comes to help people. One comes to take, the other comes to give. One is viewed with suspicion, the other is usually warmly welcomed.
the brothers of Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands face the issue of national leadership. In this book are the stories of successful national communities and ministries operating without the presence of expatriates. With a growing number of national members, the brothers are approaching the time when the district will become truly Melanesian with Melanesian leadership. Their youthfulness means that not many are yet ready for such responsibilities, but the time is drawing closer. A Melanesian district leader will do things differently in the Melanesian way. In these societies, with their rapidly evolving Melanesian cultures, adapting to being part of the world in the 21st century, the need for committed educators is just as great now as at any other time in history.